So a couple of things before we jump into the talk tonight. Apparently, every, uh, every week they like to do a Q&A time with the speaker. And so what I have found even more helpful in the years that I've been able to present um, both of them is that, uh, I thought that was funny, <laughs> uh, is that it's very helpful if as the Lord is encouraging you, challenging you, convicting you, if a question comes to mind, whether it's over the first night or uh, this morning or tonight or tomorrow night, just jot it down on a piece of paper, tear it off, and put it over on the bookstore in that little in the, the donation cup. And that way, tomorrow night, after you guys are in bed, I can go through them and really give some thoughtful answers and um, off the cuff, I find is um, it's good, but I'd prefer to be like well prepared for your question if you're asking. So if you don't have any questions, I always love making some up and you can never tell. You know, every year I make two up that honors me and um, no one ever tell, no one ever knows and no one's ever like, oh my gosh, that was so made up because I'm so good at making them up. Okay. What exactly is your ministry, and how do you fund it? <laughs> so, if you have a question, just drop it in. You have until tomorrow night, post-talk. Second of all, I have some resources that uh, are for sale over there, $10 each. There's only two. 100% of all proceeds go to needy children in my home. Um, the first book is called The Abrahamic Revolution, and this is, if you enjoy tonight, this is the, the center of this book. It's all the major world religions, how they view sin, salvation, the afterlife, and how you can share the gospel with them, along with just a biblical understanding of the big picture mission of God. So if you can only get one, this is my favorite child, get The Abrahamic Revolution. I get, it came out on Father's Day. I gave the first copy to my dad, and he's like, oh my goodness, The Arabic Revolution. And then the other book I wrote is called In This Generation. And what I did is I said, man, what are the obstacles and excuses, materialism, uh, uh, affluence, uh, debt, uh, you know, uh, marrying the wrong person? Like, what are some issues we deal with that hinder us from fully obeying God? And so I just wrote um, on the obstacles and excuses, looking to the past and how they dealt with these issues and um, to see how we can reach the present. So these are available over there. Um, I'll tell you, can I be vulnerable for a second? It might show my sin nature, which I like to not have. But I'm just going to say this because this is hilarious. I tried a marketing technique last time I was here because I thought for sure it was going to work. Can I, you want to hear it? Are we recording this yet? Dang it. Um, it's hilarious. So I was like, listen, this was my marketing. I'd never tried this before, but this is what I did. I'm like, listen, just take what you want off my book. I said this to like 150 people. Just take what you want off my bookstore, take it home and read it. And if you like it, send me $20. I thought, oh my gosh, people love that and they're gonna give me way more. You follow me? Do you see my thinking? It's, is it sin? I don't know. So anyway, people stormed my bookstore. 
oh my gosh, I went over there, there was nothing left. And then one guy came up to me and he's like, here, thank you so much for your generosity. And he handed me a check for $100. And like all the way home for two days in Arkansas, I'm like, the money's just going to keep coming in. Lord, unleash the fold, you know. I have never received a penny. I lost probably $1,100. And so... If you don't have the money, just take it. Take what you want. And if you like the book, no. Um, anyway, if you want to do that, you can, and then send me some money later. What do you think? It was a good try, wasn't it? Do you see how I thought I could manipulate the system to my favor? But then I didn't realize they were sinful too. <laughs> that was my problem. They got home from Gold Lake and they're like, forget that dude, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right, let us begin. Jesus among other founders. I don't know, I just, this is something I've just, uh, I kind of came up with this and, and I don't know, I've just, I've been working through it so I'll, I'll see how, how it flows with you guys. Um, in Hinduism, there's a parable. And if you took Philosophy 101, you've heard this parable. Maybe you didn't know it was out of Hinduism, but it is. So the parable goes like this. Five blind men are brought into a king's court, and the king says to them, please reach out and tell me what you feel. And unbeknownst to the five blind men, they put in front of these, these, these five blind men an elephant. And so they have no idea what's going on. So the, the first blind man reaches out and he touches the tail of the elephant and he cries out, it's a rope. The second blind man touches the side of the elephant and he cries out, it's a mud wall. The third blind man touches the leg of the elephant and he cries out, it's a tree trunk. The fourth blind man touches the ear of the elephant and he cries out, it's a banana leaf. The fifth blind man touches the tusk of the elephant and he cries out, it's a sword. And the reason... Many people love this parable, and the reason it flows from Hinduism is because what the parable shows is that God is one, and we are all touching different parts of the one God. And so Christians are touching the tail, Hindus touch the side, Buddhists touch the leg, Confucius touch the ear, and Muslims touch the tusk. But make no mistake, we are all touching the same God. And so when you read the Bible and you open it up and you're like, wow, this is what it's about, okay. And then you read the Quran and you're like, wow, that's what that's about. The reason they sound totally different is not because one is true and one is false. It's because we're touching different parts of the same God, so we're seeing different angles. And Philosophy 101 profs love this. And I, I, I'm here to tell you, I don't care where you go or who you talk to, and I'll even step out because I've seen this in my own life, or what educational level they're at. It could be your hairstylist or it could be a PhD professor. Everybody says all religions teach the same basic thing. Everyone. All religions teach the same basic things. It's just become like not only the politically correct thing to say, but apparently it be, it's become so believable from everybody else. And one of the reasons I've, be, I've become so fond of this book, okay, like I've read this book three times now, and um, he's become one of my favorite authors, Stephen Prothero. And the reason I enjoy Stephen Prothero is Stephen Prothero, watch this, he's a non-believer, head of the religious department 
of Boston University, philosophy of religion, PhD, and he says all religions are not the same. God is not one. They all, he's not a Christian, but he's like, you can't say they teach the same basic things. And again, for a Christ follower to say that, that's important, but man, when it comes from the high ivory tower of philosophy at Boston University, all of a sudden, that's just starting to make ripples. And so what he does in God is not one is he walks you through why they can't be the same. The epilogue in this book on why atheism's not right is worth the whole book. And it didn't even make a chapter. It's the epilogue. Listen to what Stephen Prothero says and see if he, you can tell if he's coming against this whole idea of the one God, he's at the top of the mountain, we're all mountain climbers, we, you know, we're all going up, you might take this route, you might take Buddhism, you might take Hinduism, but we're all going to make it to the same God. He stands against this idea, but, the, but the, what's great is I can say to my non-believing friend, man, even this guy, he doesn't even believe the Bible, but he's saying they can't all be true. What the world's religions share is not so much a finish line, but a starting point. Where they begin is with a simple observation. Something is wrong with the world. So what Stephen Prothero is going to say is, all religions start with the same thing. Uh-oh, there's a problem. Like, that's the starting point of all religions. But as soon as they start off from the starting line, they go in massively different directions. Where they begin is with this simple observation, something is wrong with the world. They part company, however, when it comes to stating just what has gone wrong, and they diverge sharply when they move from diagnosing the human problem to prescribing how to solve it. So they, they're completely different when it comes to how do, we, how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with this? He continues, if practitioners of the world's religions are all mountain climbers, in our analogy, then they are on very different mountains climbing very different peaks and using very different tools and techniques in their ascent. And so again, it's just refreshing to hear a non-Christian scholar of world religions say, listen, you cannot read the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Bible and say they're the same. Like, that's an impossibility. And so what I want to do tonight is to take you through these major world religions and to see if indeed you can tell what is unique among Jesus as we all interact with Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, whether on accident or on purpose, because guess what? Muslims are our doctors. We work with Hindus, and our kids play soccer with Buddhists. The world is here. I no longer live in a white, wealthy, Western beehive. The world is here. And so as we walk through these, hopefully you'll be encouraged and challenged and able to see how to interact with people from other faiths. So let's just start off with probably one of the most popular religions held by two out of every seven people breathing. Two out of every seven people breathing are considered Muslims. The founder of Islam is Muhammad ibn Abdu'Allah. When you say, what is their, their religion? You say Islam. The person practicing their religion is called a Muslim. Their religion is called Islam. The person practicing, you would say, is a Muslim. So the founder, Muhammad ibn Abdullah Heshemite, that was his full name, he was born in Mecca, Saudi Arabia in 570 AD. His mother and father died at a young age. He was raised by his uncle, Abu Talib. Abu Talib didn't know how to feed and clothe Muhammad. He had his own family to take care of. And so Muhammad, at a young age, was forced to get a job. Well, what can you get as a teenager as a job? You could just water camels. 
Eventually, the older Muhammad got, he took camels, he took caravans across the deserts of Saudi Arabia. Now, Muhammad grew up thinking there was many gods in Saudi Arabia. Every tribe, 360 tribes, they all worshiped their god. So Muhammad was what's called a polytheist, someone who worships many gods. But on one of these journeys of taking this caravan across the desert, he came across people who called themselves Jews. And he said to the Jews, how many gods do you worship? And the Jews said, we worship one God. And on another journey, he came across people who called themselves Christians. And he said to the Christians, how many gods do you worship? And the Christians said, we worship one God. And so now Muhammad was confused. Is God one or is God many? And then he meets a woman 15 years older. Her name's Khadijah. She'd been married twice before, widowed both times, very wealthy. They meet, they fall in love, they get married. And for the first time in his life, Muhammad had time to steal away, fast, and pray, and asked, who is God? His favorite place to go in Saudi Arabia was a mountain called Mount Hira. He would go into a cave, he would fast and pray, and at age 40, in 610 AD, in a cave in Mount Hira, Saudi Arabia, it is said that the angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad, and the holiest phrase in Islam was born. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is one God, Allah, and you, Muhammad, are his prophet. Muhammad didn't know what to do with this information. He told Khadijah. Khadijah said, you've got to tell the people. He's like, I can't come against my own God because he, he worshiped another God at the time. His people worshiped another God. He said, I can't go against another God. They're gonna, my own people are going to kill me. For the next 13 years, he tells his friends, his family members, after 13 years, he gets 100 followers. His own people try to kill him because they were, he was coming against their God. So he flees to a city called Medina where Jews and Christians lived. And the Jews and Christians vowed to protect him because they both believed in the one God concept. And over the next 10 years, Muhammad grew his faith from 100 followers to 11,000. And at age 63... He went back down to Mecca and in a bloodless battle was crowned prophet and king. That year, at age 63, Prophet Muhammad died of a fever. And today, two out of seven people would die for that man. Two out of every seven. For Muhammad, Allah was unknowable. You don't, there's, 90 name, there's 99 names of God in the Quran. Not one of them is Father. That's too close. You can't know Allah. Mankind's problem, it's not sin, it's self-sufficiency. The word Islam means submit. We must submit. That's our problem. And so how can I submit? Muhammad laid out five pillars when a Muslim dies, they go into the grave, a good angel and a bad angel, angel of heaven and an angel of punishment, roll out their scroll of deeds. Whichever scroll is longer takes him either to hell or to heaven. Both angels start writing at puberty. That's the hope. So you have right now two out of every seven people breathing who are desperately trying to do good works but they can't because their heart is evil. Someone asked Muhammad, Muhammad, will you go to heaven? 
In the Quran, the holiest book for the Muslim world, he says, I don't know where I'll go because I don't know the scrolls. Hinduism, founder, none, none. In Hinduism, there's no pope, there's no creed, there's no one central book, there's no common idea of what makes a Hindu. So again, this morning I mentioned if you ask a Hindu what makes a Hindu, they might say you're born in India. Another Hindu might say you honor the cow. Another Hindu might say you're a vegetarian. And they're all three right because there's no one book for Hinduism. Islam is the people of a book, the Quran. Christianity is a people of a book, the Bible. Hinduism is the people of many books. And so, God, millions. More gods in India to choose to worship than people in America. More gods in India to worship than people in America. And so, one story of the gods of India, I'll just share a short one so that you have an idea of the flavor of how they, how they work. Shiva the god of destruction, who when you see him always has a weapon of war, marries Parvati, and they have a son, Ganesh. Shiva goes on a far-off journey, comes back several years later, tries to get into his house to reconnect with Parvati. However, there's a guard out front. The guard won't let him in. Shiva's the god of destruction. He doesn't rationalize. He just destroys. So he takes out his sword, and he severs the head of the guard. Parvati hears the commotion, comes running out, and realizes that Ganesh had grown up and was guarding the house until Shiva came home. Shiva didn't recognize it was his son, Ganesh, that was guarding the house. Shiva has just severed the head of his son, Ganesh. And so, Shiva, upon hearing the news, realizes that, decides the first head transplant in the known world will take place. So he vows whatever walks by, whatever walks by next will place his head on my son, Ganesh. Well, this isn't like... Hickory Corner, Michigan. So it's not a squirrel cat or dog. This is India. So the next thing that walks by is an elephant. And so the first head transplant in the known world happens as Shiva places an elephant on Ganesh. And today you can go to India and there's a hundred million Hindus who worship the god Ganesh. A buddy of mine texts me from Delhi. He's like, bro, you're never going to believe this. I'm in Delhi, India. India is trying to get a law passed. Everybody under the age of 18 has to wear a helmet. So they've got this, they've got this whole campaign to get people to wear helmets. He texts me the picture of a billboard in India trying to get people to wear helmets. Care for your head. Not everyone gets a replacement. And there's Ganesh. So for the Hindu world, mankind's problem is not sin, it's karma. Karma. Karma means, karma means whatever you do, your actions are attached to you until you work them off. And so here I am. I'm stuck on the wheel of suffering, and my karma drags me more and more. It is said that 62,000 lives. And so salvation is found in devoting yourself to one of the gods, Ganesh, Krishna, Parvati, the word in Hindi for devote is bhakti. So my, if you ever meet a Hindu, the one question you can ask starting off, here's my favorite Hindu 101 question, who do you give bhakti to? 
and then they tell me they're God. Who do you give bhakti to? I was in Walmart because we shop local. <laughs> and uh, I remember the cash register lady, I saw her name, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going on? These are my kids. And I, I'm like, are you from India? And she's like, yes. You know, she's like the lettuce, the cauliflower. I mean, she's scanning. And I'm like, oh my goodness, who do you give bhakti to? Who do you give bhakti to? And uh, she's, she's like, I've never heard that word. And I'm like, who do you give bhakti to? She's like, I mean, I could see she was visibly embarrassed. She's like, I am so sorry. I have never heard that word. And I'm like, who do you give bhakti to? Like bhakti, like... She's like, I have never heard that word. So finally, I'm like, who do you give devotion to? And she's like, oh, bhakti. I'm like, wait, we, we, you know, we couldn't get from bhakti to bhakti? Like, that was literally insurmountable. At this point, I'm frustrated, and I'm like, you're not getting the gospel because you don't deserve the gospel. <laughs> Grabbed my bags, and I walked out. I'm like, bhakti. <laughs> Buddhism, Buddhism, founder, a man named Siddhartha Gautama. I thought the guy's name who founded Buddhism was Buddha. I was wrong. Siddhartha Gautama grew up in Nepal, a city called Lumbini, Nepal, and he was, watch this, this is crazy. He was a devout Hindu. He was a devout Hindu. But he realized the Hindu priests were leading the people astray and pocketing the money. So at age 29 years old, Siddhartha Gautama leaves his wife and his son, never to return again. This is 563 BC. He travels south from Nepal to India. Just to put this in context, had he gone west, Siddhartha Gautama could have sat under the feet of Jeremiah, our prophet. He gets so disillusioned with Hinduism that he says, you know what, I'm going to sit under a tree until I find the meaning of life. He finds a tree, he sits under the tree, he lives on a grain of rice a day for 49 days. People try to come and feed him, he says, no, no. On day 49, he passes out. And when he passes out, he sees in the light what's called the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. That all suffering is tied by your desire. Noble truth number one, all life is suffering. All life is suffering. And suffering is caused by desire, noble truth number two. All life is suffering, noble truth number one. Suffering is caused by your desire. You desire your neighbor's wife, you take her, both your family and her family are wrecked. All life is suffering. Suffering is caused by your desire. But if you can get rid of your desire, you can get rid of suffering. And then noble truth number four is here's an eightfold path on how to do that. All life is suffering. There might be glimpses of joy, but when you get to the end of your life, you look back and you go, wow, it was all suffering. Siddhartha Gautama awakes from his vision 
And people around him start shouting, enlightened one, enlightened one, enlightened one. However, guess what? They didn't say, they didn't speak English, so they weren't saying enlightened one. They spoke the Pali language. So they, what you heard if you were there was this, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. And so Siddhartha Gautama changes his name to Buddha or enlightened one. And from about age 30 to age 80, he travels North India teaching people the four noble truths. And at age 80, with a beggar's bowl and a monk's robe, someone put a, puts a bad piece of meat in his beggar's bowl and Siddhartha Gautama dies of food poisoning. And he's buried in India. And today you have 650 million Buddhas who deny God. Where's the hope if you deny God? Before Siddhartha Gautama died, some, some one of his followers said to him this, Siddhartha, how can I be free from my sin? Siddhartha said, go to the river, go to the river and take a piece of wood, put the wood in the river and let it float downstream for two years. After two years, take a blind turtle and let it go. When the blind turtle finds the wood, you're free. That's the hope of 650 million Buddhists today. And then, welcome to the world's most boringest founder of a religion. His name's Confucius. Let me just tell you about Confucius' life. Youngest of 11 children, worked in government till 51, spent 14 years in education, retired, died at age 73 leaving behind no written work and very few followers. That was it. Yet right now, if you Google Confucius said, you get 4.5 million hits. So something happened post-death in his PR world that really took off. See, Confucius said there is no God, and the problem with society is that we're not educated and we don't respect each other. So we need to educate our youth and train our youth to be respectful. And if you change, people are good. And if you change a person, you change society, you change community, you change the world. His followers wrote down after he died what they think he said. And it's written in a book called The Analects, the holiest book for Confucius, for a Confucius person. And someone asked Confucius, Confucius, tell me about heaven. And his followers stepped in and said, wait. One can get to hear about Confucius' accomplishments, but one cannot get to hear his views on human nature, the way of heaven. He doesn't talk about the afterlife. We're not there yet. We're in this life. He only focuses on this life. And so if you have someone who's from China, 
I mean, I don't know how many of you guys know this, but August 16th, my wife and I are flying to Beijing. Then we're taking a train to Guangzhou, and we're going to meet our, our four-year-old son for the first time. And we're going to be sworn in as parents. We're going to go to Hong Kong. And after 17 days, we're going to fly home with him. And when I go to his orphanage in Guangzhou, and I ask his caretaker, what religion has he heard of? She's going to say Confucianism is the religion of China. Which means when you meet a Chinese person who's here in America working, there's no word they have for God. And so you literally could be the first to explain this whole idea of a divine concept to them. And then you have Christianity. Founder, Jesus, God is triune. Mankind's problem is sin. Salvation is found through faith in the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Over the last 20 years of being in ministry, I think um, I'm not a pastor. I don't have a church. I'm kind of like, I don't know, this roamer. And um, so whenever people say, what do you do for a living? Like when I'm traveling on a plane or staying somewhere, I, I never know really what to say because I, I, you know, if you say pastor, first of all, conversation's over because they cussed and they feel bad. So you try to cuss back, but then that doesn't help your witness. <laughs> so it's just confusing. So I don't know, over the last three years, I've tried something different and it's been so fun. So this just happened, you know, this week. You know, I was talking to a lady and she's like, so what do you do for a living? And I just say, oh, I teach world religions. And so I realize whenever I say that, oh my gosh, Chatty Cathy, like they are like, oh my gosh, la, 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 la. And so then they ask me all kinds of questions, you know, that I, I, I try to answer. And it's just, but then after about 20 minutes of talking with them, everyone says this, okay, okay. Which one are you? And I always say the same thing. I'm a Christian. And they say, why? And I say, because it's the only one that's true. That's why. I am a Christian because it is the only one that is true. I will tell you this right now. If Islam was true, spoiler alert, I would be a Muslim. And I hope you would too. But it's not. I'm a Christian because it's the only one that's true. And if you want to appreciate Christianity, study other religions. I challenge people, I challenge university students, read the Quran, read the Bhagavad Gita, read the Analects. Like, I don't want to read those demon books. I'm like, you read them because they're going to make you appreciate this right here. Because no, uh, no other religion has these three. No other religion comes close. 
I mean, it's just true. The most incredible founder. I mean, Siddhartha Gautama was confused. Confucius was clueless. Muhammad thought he was seeing a vision from Satan in a cave at first. Then his wife had to tell him it was Gabriel. And then his whole life, Muhammad's like, I'm only a messenger. I have no authority. I'm just, God could have picked anybody. I'm just a messenger. And then you look at Jesus, who didn't even say, thus saith the Lord. He said, I say to you. He's the only religious founder that's still alive today. Most incredible founder. Most incredible book. I mean, if you pick up a Quran, the whole, if you pick up a Quran, the holiest book of, of, of Muslims. Last week I was in a mosque in Los Angeles, California, and I had to sit for three hours listening to a Muslim unpack why the Quran was so beautiful. And as I'm sitting there, you know, he's like, it was written over 23 years of the prophet's life. And I'm like, wow, 23 years. You know, there's no prophecy. Do you know how they put the Quran together? Longest chapter first, shortest last. That'd be like Psalms. That'd be like, you know, open the Bible and be like Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You're like, how can you even read this thing? 6,236 verses in the Quran. It's the exact same size as their New Testament. 6,236 verses. One out of every six verses talk about hell. If you don't believe this message, you're going to hell. I mean, it gets depressing after page nine. Or you take the holiest book for the Hindu world, the Bhagavad Gita. It's the same size as the book of Mark. It's 700 verses. And as you read the the Bhagavad Gita, this is the holiest book for the Hindu world. The last verse in the entire book of the Bhagavad Gita on the last page of the holiest book, Lord Krishna, who's writing it, says... And I think this is true. That's the last verse. And then you have the book in your lap. Not 23 years by one person named Muhammad. 1,500 years by 40 authors on three continents in three languages 44 million copies sold, 3,000 languages translated. This book right here is the most sold, read, and stolen book in the world. Four books about Jesus are published every day, full of prophecies, promises, and truth. The most incredible book. But also the most incredible message. It's the most incredible, I mean, every other world religion, the created have to figure out a way to the creator. But in this, the father initiates salvation by sending the son. There's an awesome story about a conference in world religions that was happening in London. And this conference had Hindus, Buddhists, Confucius, Taoists, they had Muslims, they had just, and the topic of the conversation in London in this World Religion Roundtable was what is unique about Christianity? That's what was this discussion. And so 
One scholar stood up and said, what's unique about Christianity is it's the only religion that has a resurrection. And the Hindu scholar's like, are you kidding me? No. We, our gods resurrect from the dead all the time. And so, the boot, so, so someone stood up and said, oh, it's God becoming man. That's unique to, from Christianity. And the Buddhist scholar said, are you kidding me? We have Buddhas all the time who come in the form of man and return, come and put on flesh and return to help us. And then in walks C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says, what's the rumpus about? And they said, we're discussing what if anything is unique to Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says, oh, that's easy. Grace. The freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. Like what other religion offers the freely given, unmerited favor and love of God? I mean, you can literally... Look someone in the eye and say these words. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Think about that. Freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. Most incredible founder most incredible book, most incredible message. But what I wanted to do is this. I wanted to just take one little story, okay? You guys are like, I thought you were done. Let's see what time it is. Um, I want to take one little story, and I want to just, as we walk through this story, in the back of our minds, just ask the question, what would Muhammad have said in this situation? What would Siddhartha Gautama have said in this situation? What would Confucius have said? Okay, so I'm just going to take one little story. I'm just going to pull it out of the Bible, and then, uh, then we'll conclude, okay? And hopefully you'll be encouraged. So here's my story. I thought I'd start with the first chapter in Jesus's ministry, okay? So like Luke, Luke 1 through 4, he's beginning his ministry. Luke 1 through 4, the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. By the time Luke 4, he begins, he goes into the desert. So Luke 5 is like the first chapter of his ministry, okay? He's like, here we go. We're, we're in Capernaum, and we're gonna get this thing started. So I, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 5, otherwise it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 5, and let, we'll just start in verse 17, okay? We'll just start in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One of these days, he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village, Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 5, he begins his ministry in Luke 4, we're one chapter in. So this is very early into his three years of ministry. Mark tells us more information than Luke does. Actually, Mark says that he's in Capernaum. And so, look at what's happening. Pharisees are coming and they're crowding the room. They're sitting. They're sprawled out. If you want to get the maximum people in a house, you don't just sit and sprawl out. You, like, stand straight up. But they were like, we, the people who need Jesus, they can stay outside. We want to hear his teachings and see if he's accurate. But notice, this is, again, the first chapter of his ministry. Look at where they're coming from. He's in Capernaum, and they're coming from Galilee, Judea, and I mean, we are one chapter in, and Pharisees are coming from Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. I mean, think about that. Like, he's in Capernaum. That's where he's at. They're coming from Galilee. Okay, that's like a five-hour walk. They're coming from Judea. That's like a six-day walk. They're coming from Jerusalem, the beehive of spirituality of the Pharaohs. One chapter in, and already people are coming from all over to check on him to see what he's teaching. 
So he's in Capernaum, teaching in a house. The Pharisees are sprawled out. They've come a long way to hear him. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, don't miss the emotion here, okay? So here, again, Mark tells us there's four guys. Jesus comes through Capernaum. He comes in this small little town. He comes in this house. And, and, and these four guys see their friend who's paralyzed. And they say, this is our chance to get him to Jesus. And so they make a makeshift cart and they pull this paralyzed person all the way to the house. But the problem is they can't get in. They can't even get on the lawn. It is nine layers deep of people. The house is packed, nine layers. So probably one of them's like, let's just go home. We'll come back tomorrow. And the one who made the mask is like, no, 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 no. We're getting him in right now. And they're like, how? He's like, come around back. So they go around back. They're four people deep. So like there is no hope. We can't get him in. And then all, one of them, one of the four guys with a paralyzed is like, hey, let's just, let, just push me up. Push me up where? Push me up to the roof. Where? The roof. What? Push me up. So he gets pushed up. Then he pulls the second guy up, pulls the third guy up, pulls the fourth guy up. Then he's bringing me the, me the paralyzed. So they pull the paralyzed up on the roof. Well, now what? We're on the roof. Start digging. Start what? Digging through the hay, the mud, the tile. The Pharisees are inside and like dirt stripping on their robes. They're like, what's going on? What's going on? Then they peel back the roof. They peel back the wool of the roof and they say, help us, help us. And they lower this paralyzed person and they set the paralyzed person in front of Jesus and everything stops. Your sins are forgiven you. Who cares? Heal them. No. Your sins are forgiven you. Was this not the last thing these four men thought they'd hear Jesus utter? A paralyzed man, all that we went through, And that's the response. Your sins are forgiven you. When you read this passage, it's almost as if Jesus says, 
I see his need. I'm not unaware of his need. But the point of this is that his spiritual state is more important than his physical state. And so for the rest of history, when this story is told, you may cart him back out. I am not going to heal him because for the rest of humanity, everyone who teaches this will know your spiritual state is more important than your physical state. So leave with him on the mat. You're excused. I will continue my teaching. I mean, that's literally the feel you get. But something interrupts this. Something interrupts this. And they're called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, when they heard Jesus say this, and the scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They see this paralyzed man. They're in the room sprawled out. They, they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, that, he should be stoned because only God can forgive sins. And guess what? That is a true statement. Only God can forgive sins. You know that, right? What this statement says is very true. Let me give you an example of why this is true. If, 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 you, if, if, if I come to your house when you're not there, just because you didn't buy a book, and um, uh, I, I like burn your house down, okay? I'm very mad that you didn't send me that $100. And I burn your house down. And as I'm leaving, I just look back and I'm like, Ugh. I mean, I didn't take your flat screen out. I didn't take your iPad out. I didn't take any, I just left it all in there. And you're coming back to fire trucks and a burned house. And then I go back to Fayetteville and I'm feeling bad for burning down your house because, you know, I just have a conscience. And so, so I go to my neighbor, Roger, in Fayetteville, and I'm like, Roger, can you forgive me for burning down this family in Ohio's house? Like, I'm just feeling bad about it. Roger's going to say, no, I can't forgive you. The only person who can forgive you is the one who you have sinned against. Psalm 50, Psalm 51 verse 4, David says, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. The Pharisees are correct. We sin against God. Only God can forgive sins. Now, what they didn't realize was Jesus in their midst was God. They missed that. And so they said, only, only God can forgive sins, so now we have two options. Jesus says your sins are forgiven, only God can forgive sins. We have two options. Either this man is God, which we know he's not, or he is a false prophet and needs to be stoned. So that's why the rest of the ministry, from Luke 5 all the way through Luke 24, they try to kill Jesus. He has to die. He's a false prophet. He said he could forgive sins. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. When you think about that statement, if a paralyzed person was placed in front of Muhammad, he would say he has no power to do miracles and he has no power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Confucius would never say to a person, your sins are forgiven. Siddhartha Gautama would never say to a person, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, without hesitation and a quiver in his voice, looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. 
Only God can forgive sins. When Jesus made that comment, your sins are forgiven, he was making a claim to deity. He was making a claim to deity. And then Jesus asked a question. He was just going to say, go on, we're done here, your sins are forgiven, walk on out. But the Pharisees, they, 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 they asked this. And so Jesus, they didn't even ask it out loud, he perceived their thoughts. Why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? He asked them a question back. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk? Which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Which one's easier? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And let me just give you an example. It's way easier to say your sins are forgiven. It requires no validation. Okay, so like in Fayetteville, we have this street that all college towns have where all the bars are. And like if I just went to Dixon Street where all the bars are and I'm like, you know, out front and I'm like, hey, buddy, it's 2 a.m. I just want to tell you your sins are forgiven. He's going to be like, thank you, you know. If I, and then his buddy walks by, hey man, you're going to heaven. I can see it in your eyes. Sins are forgiven. They'd be like, thanks. They would not give me the time of day. But if they were pushing a guy in a wheelchair, and I stopped him and I said, hey, your sins are forgiven. Also rise and walk. And all of a sudden their friend got feeling in their legs, rose up and started walking the whole place would freak out. And they would all go, I'm going to heaven, he told me. Which one is easier? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, your sins are forgiven, it requires no validation. So, so Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Think about that. We're one chapter into Jesus' ministry. He says, I have the power to forgive sins. He validates that with pulling him up off the mat. But then, for the first time in his ministry, he calls himself his favorite thing to refer to himself. For the rest of his life, he refers to himself as the son of man. Is that just a fancy nickname? Why, did he, why does he refer to himself as the son of man? He actually gets it from, Deut- uh, from Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen. listen to what it says. Again, Luke chapter five. This is the first time he calls himself the son of man. Why does he take on that name for himself? Daniel seven thirteen. this is what it says. And this will become Jesus' favorite way to identify himself. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in a vision with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He was the ancient of days. And to him, this son of man was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom. All peoples, nations, language will serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. And that is the name he takes for the rest of his ministry. One chapter into his ministry, rise and walk. Your sins are forgiven, and I am the Son of Man. It is no wonder the chapter concludes with this. The holiest passage for every one of those 12 disciples. 
Like if you ask the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, what is your favorite verse in all of your scriptures? They would say, it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. That is the favorite verse of all 12 of the disciples. And they would never say anything that would negate this. Yet Thomas, the one who we call Doubting Thomas, who gets the worst of anybody in the the scriptures on how he doubted Jesus, he actually gives us the highest thing ever spoken about Jesus to Jesus. Knowing Deuteronomy 6.4 is the core, there is one God, Thomas looks up at Jesus and literally says, my Lord and my God, and he never rebukes him. What other founder on the planet would let a follower say this about him? And Jesus looks at Thomas and says, oh, Thomas, I'm here in your midst. You've seen my ministry. Blessed are you because you've seen. But I tell you, there's going to come a time in 2018 when people will doubt. They haven't seen. Blessed are them who have not seen yet believed. Most unique founder, most unique book, most unique message. Why am I a Christian? It's the only one that's true. And so, Father, I just pray that as we continue this week, as we think about how this applies to us, as we go back home and we interact with people from other faiths, we could be learners, but also that we could be people who share how you are are unique, how your scripture's unique, how your son is unique, how our life is unique because it's attached to you. We just ask this in your name, amen.